0: Hi, we're sisters, Amy and Nancy Harrington. We founded the Passionistas Project to tell the stories of women who are following their passions and fighting for equality for all. The more we spoke with women for our podcast, subscription box, and the annual Power of Passionistas Summit, the more we saw a common trait in all of them. They are unstoppable. Whether they chose to use their voices to start a women-owned brand, a fight for the rights of the marginalized, we found that all Passionistas are resilient, compassionate, and persistent. Each year we honor women who embody these qualities by presenting the Passionistas Persist Awards. This episode of the podcast is
1: an interview with one of the 2022 recipients. Our final award this evening is the Passionistas Persist Humanitarian Award, which honors a woman who spends her days in pursuit of equal rights and promoting human welfare for all people. The award is being presented by Kara Reedy, a journalist, actor, director, and photographer. As the director of the Disabled Journalists Association, Kara knows that the world is missing out on some of the best stories on the planet, and the journalist in her
2: knows that can't stand. I met Rebecca three years ago when I was interviewing her for a documentary I was working on at The Guardian. Literally, the moment we clapped eyes on each other, she screamed, you don't get down with that. LPA bullshit either. I knew we would be friends immediately. Rebecca is a second generation activist. She's been around since she could ride on her godmother's wheelchair to uh, protest. She was the co-founder and director of the Disability Justice Initiative at Center for American Progress, where she built out a progressive policy platform that protected the rights and services disabled people depend on for survival and also developed an innovative solutions like a proposed disability, disabled worker tax credit and increased access to capital for disability-owned small businesses. She stewarded a campaign that resulted in an unprecedented 12 presidential candidates developing disability policy platforms. She's a three-time presidential appointee Rebecca served in key policy roles at the Department of Education and the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as oversaw diversity and inclusion efforts for the Obama administration. I'm honored to present her with the Passionistas Persist Humanitarian Award. Thank you
3: so much, Kara. It is such a tremendous honor to accept the 2022 Passionistas Persist Humanitarian Award. 43 years ago, my parents, both people with dwarfism, recorded an interview for a local news station where they said that they hoped for a future for their child where people with dwarfism would not be jokes, could achieve any job they desired and live a life free from discrimination. Their work as activists and advocates paved the road that led me to youth leadership programs, to the University of California, Santa Cruz, Go Banana Slugs, the White House, numerous campaigns, and today at the Ford Foundation. As the mom of three, I find myself honestly wishing the same thing for my children today, 43 years later. There was anything I learned from my mom, a single mom who became a single mom when my dad left us after she got accepted into college was a lesson in persistence. Sometimes the only way out is through. And in troubling times like these, there is no one else I would rather be in the trenches with working our way through all of this hot mess than all of you fellow passionistas. Thank you again for this tremendous honor.
2: I always like to think about like how people grew up and like I grew up in a in a house full of black people because we we're black. That persisted through the civil rights movement. But I didn't have a full understanding of like disability as an identity, how they intersect just I I was a little behind kind of in my understanding of disability and oppression. How do you feel like You being a second generation um, activist in this space has prepared you to attack the problem, the problems of oppression of disabled people. How did your understanding of your oppression as a child lead you to this and um, having your parents kind of lead you to it?
3: My parents never hesitated to talk about either our oppression that we face as people with dwarfism or the privilege that we face. And, you know, you see, I, I have a good trouble banner up in the background. Um, my dad was the son of a federal judge in Selma, Alabama. I have no problem using the term he, a white supremacist federal judge in Selma, Alabama, um, who routinely threw Freedom Riders in jail, who oversaw the travesty that was the Reverend James Reeb trial and who uh, filed an injunction that made it a a violation of the law for three or more African-Americans to congregate in Selma and talk about voting. And that history was never hidden from me. My parents were very open in talking about how my dad was raised, how he was brought up, Um, his Parents and, and siblings' perception of the world and their place in it. And you know, for my dad, yes, he was you know the younger son of this this big time jackass of a judge. But my dad was also the only little person in his family. And so you know, wherever they went, yes, he was the judge's kid, but he was also the dwarf. Um, and his older brother had schizophrenia. So in a in a very southern, very patriarchal family, both sons were disabled. And I think that was something that was never lost on my dad. His his brother became institutionalized when my dad was a teenager, and his brother was in, was in his early 20s. Um, and so, while yes, he grew up with a lot of privilege, he also grew up with a brother that you know nobody talked about. Um, and then he was the heir, or you know, you had the heir and the spare. If we're gonna you know use a use a um, a monarchy term, um, and the spare was a little person. And so, uh, you know, my dad spent a lot of time thinking about what what his life was like. And my dad grew up with gay friends in Alabama and saw how they were treated, and ended up at a little people convention where he met my mom, who was the the number five of nine kids, all red haired flower children, and it was love at first sight. My dad went home to Alabama and packed up his '69 Camaro and drove it from Selma to San Francisco. Um, and they got married like six months after my mom turned 18 and, uh, my mom was also the only person with dwarfism in her family. And growing up in the Area at the height of the AIDS epidemic, my dad ran a center for independent living. My mom ran a disabled student center at a community college. And so they were losing friends and students and clients left and right. And, I remember as a kid, like my parents skipping my ice skating lesson for us to go to funerals. And I remember like being like, why are we going to another funeral? And my parents being like, nobody deserves to die alone. Like we have a responsibility to show up for people. Um, and that was always my parents' core value. And, you know, we would talk about things. Like I remember when I had the realization that my dad's best friend was gay and I remember asking my dad, why does Uncle Don's roommate come with us whenever we go anywhere? Like, why, why, does Don, why does Mark come with us? And my dad was like, well, that's his, you know, that's his roommate. And my mom was like, come on, Billy, like, give me a break. And my dad was like, that's his partner. They love each other. And like, I was six. And so it was like, oh, they love each other. Okay, that's cool. Like, whatever. Um, you know, so my parents were really open in both talking about sort of, the, the ways they moved about the world, but also the fact that like, that there was oppression and that we had to talk about it and that it wasn't always like stiff upper lip or, you know, pick yourself up from the bootstraps. But there are days that it really sucks being a disabled person. And like, they didn't hide that from me.
2: You also kind of touched on like grief being a really big part of being disabled. I don't say that lightly, but what I, whenever I say this, or, or bring up something that's negative around disability, people are like, we knew it. And it's like, no, not, you don't really get it. Like, that's not what we mean by that, but it's, but there is a level of grief that is involved in being disabled. um, because the systems let you down so often, how do you navigate your grief um, to keep moving.
3: I was in your spot and I was interviewing Senator Tammy Duckworth um, when we launched the project that I was running at the time at the Center for American Progress. And I asked her about it um, as a disabled woman veteran. And she said, you know, Becca, sometimes you just have to embrace the suck. And I thought that phrase was so perfect. And I was like, I've never heard anyone just say it like that. And she was like, yeah, there's days it totally sucks. Um, and there's days that it's really rough and that's, that's the reality. And we don't tell the, we don't do any of us a service by not being willing to talk about that. And I think as a, you know, as a kid growing up, my parents, um, handled people staring at us very differently. My dad being a Southern kid and being a judge, son was it, you know, eternal politician would be like, hi, my name is Billy. And me, like, I was sitting in the corner, like, going, like, <laughs> at, like, six. And I remember the first time I did that, and my mom, like, the other parent grabbed my mom. And was Like, do you know that your child just flipped off my child? And my mom pulled me aside and was like, did you just flip them off? And I was like, no, I gave them the finger. And she was like, that's what that means. Um, and I was like, why is it okay for them to act that way towards me in public? Like, why am I supposed to be um okay with it um you know it's not okay and like if I can't act that way in public like why are they allowed to act that way and my mom was always like well you know different people are raised differently and whatever but like there are moments like I find even now as a parent watching my kids grow up um, and you know two three years of a pandemic meant my kids weren't in school with their peers all of this time they were remote learning And I remember my son's response the first time he saw his best friends from that he'd been going to school with from kindergarten on after this break. And he was like, mom, they got really tall. And I was like, yeah, they did. And he was like, oh. And it was a reminder for my husband, like my son is a a jock. He loves sports. He's super outgoing. But I remember when I was on softball teams. And I remember when it got to the point where my 100% was literally dwarfed by their 100%. And no matter how hard I tried, like I couldn't keep up. And that's like, and and going through that period of time. And I remember coming across a, a book on dwarfism. Um, recently, actually, that had my mom's story in it. And my mom talked about how, when she was 16, my grandpa took her to Muir Woods, just north of San Francisco. And with a family and nine kids, nobody got alone time with parents. It just doesn't happen. And my grandfather sat in the car with my mom in the in the Volkswagen bug that they had and told her she was never gonna get any bigger. And, and her talking about her mourning process. And like, that wasn't something my parents took from me. And so, you know, there are days when it sucks. I mean, I remember there was a job I really wanted, a vice president for health justice for, for a progressive women's organization. I was a finalist. And then they called me to tell me I wasn't getting the job. And what they said, and I quote was, our organization is not ambitious enough to hire someone like you. <laughs> and I was like, what the, like, what the hell? Like, am, is that a compliment? Is it an insult? Like, how do I even take that? And I remember being like, "Oh, okay. Like, you're proud that your organization has such a fast, like, ass backwards view about the world. Um, you know." And so I think it's just, it doesn't, doesn't mean you're not proud in who you are. It actually means that you have just, uh, like, you know who you are.
2: I've spent a lot of time like investigating ableism. That like ableist ideas I have when, um. I feel like you end up kind of almost mourning that like period where you're like, Oh, this isn't going to get any better. Like it's always going to be like this, but that's okay. Cause I know how to do it.
3: And you have people to do it with, I think, you know, growing up with community with people with all different Types of disabilities with role models with dwarfism um, had such a positive impact on me because, you know, did I know when I was like a teenager that like the people that I looked up to had the same insecurities and fears and whatnot that I didn't know? They were the cool teenager who managed to get their parents to pay for altering acid wash jeans and let them crimp their hair. Like they were cool. Um, and like being able to see that was really important being able to um... <laughs> I remember the first time I ever saw porn mm-hmm. and I was at my godmother's bridal shower and I was I was like 15 and in a room with a whole bunch of women with a whole bunch of different types of disabilities there were deaf women there were women with cerebral palsy there were women who used communication boards to talk it was like the most like pro-feminist rabble-rousing crew of like disabled crippled women on the face of the planet and this porn came on and I remember just like being like I don't know what to do with this (laughs) okay this is interesting um and like they thought it was the funniest thing on the face of the planet I remember just being like this room of like real like what does it say that this room of really like we're sitting here laughing at the ableds doing like sex acts on TV as a room of like disabled women and just being like, this is funny. Like, right, this is funny. Like, am I supposed to laugh at this? And I remember my mom just be like, I cannot believe I'm watching this with my 15 year old daughter, um, <laughs> you know? And and I think it's moments like that where you share space, or I mean, as um, my Patrick and I just watched Almost Famous the other night and they talk about the, the currency of being collectively uncool. Mm. And I think there's something about that, like, among other disabled people or among other people from other diverse communities, too, because I've found similar, um, similar support and comfort among, like, my Black women friends. You know, one of my biggest frustrations is doing media and having the article come out later that's, like, little person, big, whatever. Or, you know, Rebecca's personality is so big, I never noticed she was small. And it's so enraging because it's like, so you don't understand my reality and You don't know me. From the time I wake up in a bed that's oversized and huge and made by restoration hardware, and I have to high jump to get on it, even though I really love it. um, I wake up in a world that's been structured for average height people. So I have to talk to you like a child because you're acting like a child, Um, you know? And so I think that there's this, I I watch media claim to try to get it but that would actually require as you know like the the labor that comes with doing the work versus being able to say well let's just like slap a reality show tag on it and call it a day
1: we're amy and nancy harrington and you're listening to the passionistas project podcast are you looking for the perfect holiday gift for the women in your life Visit thepassionistasproject.com to order our subscription box filled with products made by women-owned businesses and female artisans to inspire women to follow their passions. Get a free mystery box with a one-year subscription using the code WINTERMYSTERY. Now here's more of the Passionistas
2: Persist Award Ceremony. I find there's a lot of language around sensitivity, like, oh... We're going to be sensitive to, to disabled people. And I'm like, well, I don't care about your sensitivity because this is fake sensitivity. What I need you to do is do your job and investigate things. I don't care about your feelings. Which kind of brings me to my next question about you building out your, the Ford disability Program. I I feel like one of the things that you do the best you do a lot of things great but like one of the bigger biggest things is that you're such a connector but you not only connect dots but you you understand how to fund them and like it's it's been amazing to watch just from the little bit I know can you talk a little bit about how you've approached kind of building this groundbreaking sort of platform and base. For so long, the number one thing holding
3: back work in the disability rights and justice space was, we don't have money. And so I remember um, when I was at the National Council on Disability, I should know even before that, I remember when I was working for President Obama, and I needed to find people with disabilities that were experts in housing policy. And I made like 30 calls and I couldn't find anybody. I was just like, oh, my God, this has this is ridiculous. Why is there this problem? And, you know, part of the problem is because people with disabilities live in a state of legalized, codified poverty. And so folks don't go to college or can't go to college, can't afford going to college. Or if they go to college, they can't work because if they work, they'll lose their health insurance. Um and I remember just being like, what would it be like if like money wasn't the problem? Like, what could we build? And so I started years ago building this list that was originally entitled Things That We Need. And it was like a cross disability rights community housing portfolio, like policy agenda. Like what, what do we like, what are the issues, what are the problems, et cetera. Um, like what else do we need? Why do we keep, I remember saying like, why do we keep funding exoskeletons when disabled people by the thousands die every year as a result of bed sores? Like, Jesus, do we need another damn exoskeleton and why is money going to this? And people are like, Oh, the, the, the averages and the abled are like, Oh, look, it's an exoskeleton. So you can walk too. Yeah. But I'd rather not die of a bed sore. Um, and so I just started building a list. And then uh, when I was asked to apply for the job at Ford, the list became a bit more formal and turned into cool shit, I want the Ford Foundation to fund <laughs> at the back of a notebook. And in it, I'm um, very specifically laid out, like we need a place doing work on immigration reform. We need to fund work uh, supporting native and indigenous folks with disabilities. Um, we need a disabled journalist organization. We need a disabled or we need an organization of disabled doctors, um, you know, especially during this pandemic. And so much of the, the health reporting is just so crappy. So if we have good journalists and we have good doctors, like that's a package deal. We can we can move something forward, um, you know, and re- like I need a disabled economist. I want to be able to break down the numbers so we can actually tell the real story around disability and poverty. And like, if we're talking about reparations, have we thought about how reparations would impact disabled African-Americans? No, we haven't. Well, how do we make sure they don't screw African-American disabled folks? Um, And can I get an economist to build out that work? Because I know we're really gonna need it, but no one's doing it. Um, And that's like the most fun part of the job is sometimes just like sitting back and being like, okay, so if we get this, this and this, like, what's the next thing? What would be really cool to do? Like who, and also at the same time, being at a place like Ford. Like I joke all the time that when I was at the White House, everyone took my calls. No, like 90% of people took my calls. 100% of people take my calls when you give away money. And I was lucky that I had friends that worked in the foundation space that were like, enjoy it now because when your time is up, nobody will answer your calls. They're like, so like, use it. Um, and so continually thinking of like, what are the spaces we need to be in? And how can I use the privilege that I have in my role at the Ford Foundation to get our people into those spaces and make sure that they're supported in those spaces and that they can thrive in those spaces? Because it's not just getting in the door. Because like you can get in the door and then be surrounded by a room full of assholes. Um, But how do we make sure it's the right door? How do we make sure whatever we're funding is set up to thrive? How do we make sure the people on the other end get it? And are going to, to, to truly welcome and embrace and um, not just accept but amplify and support disabled folks and disabled issues in that way. And, you know, I think through my career, like having the, the sort of sense of scale of the community that I do and sort of the sense of the progressive world as it is, you know, just always continually like keeping, keeping track of who's doing cool work. Like, who's doing something that's really neat? Who's doing something that's different? And is there a way that we can fund it? And if not us, can I like connect them with another
2: funder that can help support their work? Your kids are third generation now, activists. And they're already like- Mouthy, obnoxious, persistent. They're persistent, which is great. (laughs) Where do you hope to get the disability rights, civil rights space to hand off to them? I want them to not have to choose whether they're black or they're
3: disabled. Like I want them to be able to walk in a space, whether it be a a disability majority space, um, uh, African American majority space, and be welcomed and celebrated and supported for who they are regardless of who their mother is and what I had to do to, to lovingly encourage those organizations to stop being butt heads and let them in. I want them in those places and thriving, you know, if they, if they want to be. I've made a point of never running for office in LPA because my mom did that my entire life. And I told myself I was not going to be an LPA officer because I wanted to be the parent at the pool with my kids. I wanted to know who their friends were. I wanted their friends to know me. Um, and you know, if they want to move in these spaces, I want them to feel comfortable with it. I want Kaya to be proud of the fact that Elizabeth Warren made her pinky promise to consider running for president one day and that Elizabeth Warren called her to ask her about her presidential platform that she, that she had me post on Twitter, you know, and at the same time, I want, if Kaya wants to say, you know what, I want to be a teacher instead, or I want to be a mom. Like, I want those choices to be her choices and not choices she feels are imposed on her or limited by society. And I want Kendrick to feel okay for just being an average, you know? I want good jobs for for average kids. Like, light bulb Turner is just not good enough. Like, person who hands down stuff to their mom from the top shelf of the grocery store. No. Like, he can go to college, too. He can do real things. (laughs) What are you
2: most passionate about?
3: It's hard in this moment to think about things that we're fighting for. You know, like, I won't, I frankly am struggling like a lot of people in figuring out what is it I'm passionate about in this very moment. Um, because it's hard to feel excited about stuff as a disabled person and watching society be like, oh, we're just going back to normal. And like I was talking to somebody recently and they're like, well, as we go back and our grantees go back to, to the office. And I was like, "Who's grantees? I was like, my grantees aren't going back to work. My grantees are still afraid of going outside and dying. My grantees are mad that they have to take a, you take a bus to the pharmacy to get some damn N95s because our government didn't think enough about sticking them in the box with the test kits. I want to get to a place where I can be like positively passionate about something. I, Adamantly despise and abhor J.K. Rowling and all of the horrible things she says and does. But as somebody that grew up uh, reading Harry Potter as a a late-stage adolescent/slash early adult, I remember like reading the first book on the plane when I realized that they wouldn't card me as a little person on the plane, and like drinking a Corona at like 19 on a plane was like the first Harry Potter book. But I have a I have a tattoo that says "constant vigilance," um, which is Mad Eye Moody's uh, constant morning throughout um, book four and I got that tattooed when Trump became president because I never wanted to take my eyes off of what was happening. I knew it would be really easy to turn away and just be like, I'm just not going to listen to that guy. He's a reality show blowhard and
2: we need to be in the fight.
3: And so I dream, I, I am passionate about getting to a day where I don't have to be constantly vigilant.
2: Tell us about a time you persisted.
3: Back when I was at the Center for American Progress, and we were starting to talk about the 2020 election, and I remember a colleague of mine, a dude, who um, was overseeing some parts of my work and may have contributed to giving me more aggressive migraines, which I still live with today. I'd never realized that somebody could actually give you a disability, but like this person gave me an, an extra disability, and like I never even got to thank them for that said to me what are the two or three things that you would like to see presidential campaigns buy into as it relates to your people and so at the time we were thinking well elimination of subminimum wage marriage equality for disabled folks on SSI and means tested programs um, greater funding of special education and home and community-based services HCBS were like those are the four things and i remember sitting there and being like yeah that's it and i remember getting a phone call as i was walking through the airport um, and i answered it and it was from a, a 510 number so it was oakland and i answered it and it was a staffer for then senator kamala harris and they were like hey so we want to build a disability platform like its own standalone platform we don't just want to like weave stuff into what the Senator is, is talking about, but like we want our own standalone, like this is where she stands on these issues. And mind you, at this point in time, there were 25 Democrats running for president. So the field was beyond full. Um, I remember talking to them as I like walked through the airport and being like, well, we could like, these are like the four things and they're like, well, what else? And so I remember being like, well, you know, we could look at, let's break down income inequality data. Um, let's make sure that any income data is broken down by race and disability and race and disability together. Um, and they were like, huh, OK, that's cool. You know, we talked about a couple other things and, and the phone and then we hung up the phone. Then like three days later, the phone rang and it was Senator Booker's staff. And they were like, Corey wants a disability platform. And so what I realized at the time, there were a couple things. One, everyone was looking for a way to stand out. And everyone was looking for a a piece of vote that hadn't been claimed yet. Um, And the other part was on the CAP website, disability was right between climate and the economy. And so as they were going through pulling platform ideas from the organization, like putting disability between climate and the economy alphabetically was genius (laughs) because they were just like, oh, let's call the disability people. Hey, I guess we need to have a disability platform. CAP says we should have it. Like, let's do that. I remember like, after talking to, um, to to Senator Booker's staff being like, you could get bigger than this. What if it's not just four bullet points? What if we could get every candidate to have a platform? And I remember people at my office being like, oh, that's never going to happen. And mind you, these were the same people that told us, oh, this project's never going to do anything. No one's ever going to give you money. Like, ho-hum, whatever. This is a trend. and It'll go away eventually. Um and then I remember actually like getting towards the end and we had had um, Pete Buttigieg's platform come out and hi- him hiring Emily Vorde as a, as a campaign staffer, um, Secretary Castro, Senator Warren. Um, and at that point we were waiting on, 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 on uh, Senator Sanders' platform. And I was on a train and my phone rang and it was a, a 210 number. And so I answered the phone and it was Secretary Castro. And I was like, hello, this is Rebecca. And he's like, hey, Becca, it's Julian. How are you? And I was like, good. And he's like, look, I'm just calling to say thank you for what you did, for writing that platform for us. I'm really proud of it. We're really excited. And like, this is massive for people with disabilities, for Texans with disabilities. He's like, this was a learning moment for me. And we talked for about 10 minutes on the train. And I hung up the phone and never in my entire life had I ever received a call from any of the candidates I had worked with. And then the next week, Senator Warren called to say thank you. And to date, they are the two political candidates um, that have ever called to thank me for my work. Called me personally and just been like, thank you, it was awesome. Like we learned. And it blew my mind because like, like I had expected we would get some things done I expected, I was like, maybe we'll have an impact. But to see then Secretary Castro stand on the debate stage and get asked a question about education and him talk about it and then also specifically turn it around to turn it into a disability question. To see Senator Warren take a disability question. See, you know, now Secretary Buttigieg. um, To see Senator Sanders talk about home and community-based services after he released a 40 page plan that included everything and the kitchen sink, God bless Bernie. And then to have to fight Biden. And Biden's people who were my friends that I had worked with in the White House on putting out their disability platform and actually having to create a hashtag, hashtag access to Joe to shame them that he was the last man standing. We still didn't have a platform. And um, finally getting that out and then being able to take a nap. And just being like, I'm going to take a nap now. Like, and then somebody was like, but what about Marianne Williamson and Andrew Yang? And I was like, no, nope, had nothing to do with them. Bye bye bye. You know, and today to still have the relationship with Secretary Castro and his team and Senator Warren and that they haven't given up, it wasn't a fluke. And if we hadn't have fought for it, we wouldn't have gotten it.
2: Why is it important for women to lift each other up?
3: We have a responsibility to do things better than previous generations. You know, Ann Richards used to say there's a special place in hell for women that don't support each other. And I totally believe that that's true.
2: What does the power of passionista mean to you?
3: It's the power of the fight. It's the power of not giving up. Um, it's the power of the possible, the thinking about in this moment, feeling not excited about the world, but still not losing hope, like still having hope that we will get to a place where um we can live our fullest lives, be, bring our whole selves unabashedly and proudly and excitedly to whatever table we go to. Or if we don't like a table, you know what, we pull out a chainsaw, we saw the damn thing down, set it on fire, and we have a campfire. And we set a campfire that we can all bring our whole selves to.
0: Thanks for listening to the awards presentation with Rebecca Coakley. And thanks to Kara Reedy for the amazing interview. To learn more about Kara and the Disabled Journalists Association, follow her on social media at Infamously Short. To learn more about Rebecca's work as the Program Officer for U.S. Disability Rights, visit FordFoundation.org. And if you're looking for the perfect holiday gift for the women in your life, visit ThePassionistasProject.com to order our subscription box filled with products by women-owned businesses and female artisans to inspire women to follow their passions. Get a free mystery box with a one-year subscription using the code WINTERMYSTERY. And be sure to subscribe to the Passionistas Project podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming inspiring guests. Until next time, stay well and stay passionate.